Well, thank you, Connor and Christy, for leading us in worship. Excited to start a new series today. I feel led to, to do this. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. I don't know how many chapters we'll get in, uh, but at least the first few chapters of the book of Acts or more. We'll see how the Lord leads. But the book of Acts is undoubtedly my favorite book in the Bible. This is the book I spend more time reading and studying than any other by far. If you want to know about how to start a church from scratch, um, or if you want to know about what Jesus had in mind for his church, then you need to spend a lot of time in the book of Acts. We're about to learn from the church in its most organic form. This was the church as Jesus left it, you know, before it had time to go off track. Um, the book of Acts actually begins with the birth of the very first church. And by the time it concludes, there are local churches planted all over the known world. Whether you're a believer or not, the story of the beginning of the church is truly one of the most amazing stories that has ever been told. As we study the story recorded in Acts, we're going to be asking ourselves questions like these. <clears throat> what are the essentials? for the church of Jesus Christ. What did they do that we aren't doing? How did they do what they did? How did they do it? What are we doing that they weren't doing? What changes do we need to make? I've titled this series, The Church of Acts. And that ought to tell you a little bit about where we're going with this. Notice the double meaning. The church of Acts was a church of Acts. <laughs> we, we are not saved by good works, but friends, we are saved for good works. The church was created to do something. The church of Jesus Christ exists to be on mission. In fact, if any church is not on mission, that church is simply not functioning as his church. We're going to see that the church Jesus had in mind is a place of action, not mostly about what you can get, but a place from which to give. I pray that each of us will experience both conviction and inspiration as we learn just who and what it is that we're supposed to be and do together as the body of Christ on earth. The inspired author of Acts is Luke. And he wrote this book as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the constant traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Luke was also a meticulously accurate historian and a world-class journalist. He was a doctor. It would seem that Luke became the personal physician of the Apostle Paul, who apparently struggled with some kind of um, chronic illness. With his excellent grasp of the Greek language, Luke helped Paul write many of his letters, acting as a sort of scribe. I would say that Luke is probably my favorite author of Scripture. So let's get into our text. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, today we're going to look at the first eight verses. You'll notice Luke addresses a Roman dignitary named Theophilus, which means lover of God. And, and although I think there likely was such a person, take note that it was also a known literary device to write as if to a person while actually envisioning a, a much larger audience. So referring back to <clears throat> what we now call the Gospel of Luke, 
He writes in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's referring back to the Gospel of Luke, so he's picking it up right where he left off. Until the day, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. What we see here really is the beginning of the beginning of the church. This is about how Jesus prepared and sent out the first church plant team. Those who would be planting the first church just a few days later, Jesus is giving them their marching orders, their first calling, which must also be our first calling. No matter what else we find in Scripture that the church ought to be doing, Nothing gets to hold the position of first and foremost besides the first calling of Christ found in verse 8 of our text. What is this calling? It's really very simple. We are called to be witnesses to the identity and work of Christ. That is to the saving power of the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus saves. Understand that bearing witness to Jesus was the first calling of the first church, and it is the first calling of Go Church. But there's a little bit more to see here. From these verses, I think we can pull out three components of the first call of Christ to His church, beginning with this. The church is prepared by Christ. Don't miss what we can learn by taking note of how Jesus did things. He prepared them before He called them. Look back at verse 2 and following. Second part of verse 2, until the day when Christ was taken up to heaven, after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen, to these He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them <clears throat> over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. These verses are about preparation. Jesus is clearly making a point to prepare the first church plant team so that they will be able to launch a healthy church at the proper time. It is also important to understand that there were many more people involved in this scene beyond those 11 apostles mentioned in verse 2. Luke uses the apostles' representatively here in order to remind the church of their authority that it came down through them. The commission came to them first. But we do have more information elsewhere that tells us they were not the only ones there. 
And they were not the only ones being prepared to accomplish this commission. We know from the gospel accounts and later in this book that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and also his physical brothers and sisters were very involved. Additionally, Paul tells us there were at least 500 eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrection, believers at this point. People who had experienced the risen Christ and who, had, who would have been staying nearby and, and being together during these 40 days. The point is that this season of preparation involved all of the believers at that time. And all of them would wind up spreading out to make disciples and ultimately to help plant disciple-making factories, also known as churches. Not only the original apostles, <clears throat> not only the other leaders, but actually all of the believers were being taught about how Jesus wanted them to expand God's kingdom. All of them had been commissioned by Christ, and they all followed through and lived that out. What I want you to understand is that since these verses applied to all of the believers who existed at that time, by extension, they also apply to all of us. So as we look at three specific aspects of how the church is to be prepared by Christ, understand that the church He would prepare is you. How should you be prepared? Three ways. First of all, you must embrace the commission. From verse 2, until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. What were the orders Christ gave on the day when he was taken up to heaven? That would be a little something that we call the Great Commission. And what were these followers of Christ commissioned to do? According to Matthew 28, they were commissioned to make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them to obey the commands of Christ. These were their orders. And again, though the apostles are singled out by Luke, we know that these orders were given to all who were there. And likely Jesus gave slightly different versions of these orders on more than one occasion. Mark's version simply says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So what is the first call for those who would be disciples of Jesus? Well, these first disciples were called to do what? To make more disciples, right? But what would have happened if they had not passed this calling forward? Well, the church of Jesus Christ would have died in one generation. But let me take you a little bit deeper. What is all of this multiplication really doing? What is it that making disciples who make disciples actually does? In other words, what is the ultimate goal here? What did Jesus talk to them about most during his three years with them prior to the crucifixion? And then again, during these 40 days after the resurrection. Look at the end of our text where Luke says that during those days, Jesus was speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The expansion of the kingdom of God on earth is what this is really all about. God's kingdom expands on earth one person at a time. And as we will see so clearly in the book of Acts, God's kingdom exponentially expands one more church at a time. This is what followers of Jesus are to be about 
This is what the church was made to do, to expand the kingdom of God. But how many modern church members and how many modern churches have truly embraced this commission as their own? I'm telling you the first thing that every member of any church should embrace is that we are commissioned by Christ to make disciples. That is to help other people become followers of Jesus. Or as Luke puts it here in Acts, to be his witnesses to the world. These orders have been passed down from Jesus through his first disciples and through all the generations of disciples, even to the point of reaching your ears today. The question is, are you and I going to be where the line stops? Or are we going to fumble the handoff? Or will we embrace the commission and hold on to it? That's the first part of being prepared to embrace the commission. Now the second part of preparation is this. You must be trained. Our text says Jesus was appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus had already spent three years teaching many of them, but he also made use of the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension to teach them truths that they were not, they would have never been ready to hear, to grasp, before seeing him rise from the dead. They just weren't ready for this level of training yet because they had not completely understood why he came. Not until he died and rose again. Regardless, for three years and then 40 more days, Jesus trained them. And you see, in order to be prepared, we also need to be trained. 1 Peter 3.15 says we should be trained so that we'll be ready to explain the reason behind our hope in Christ. 2 Timothy 4.2 tells us to be ready to preach the word. Hebrews chapter 5 explains that training can help bring us to maturity. Jesus didn't leave those who wanted, he wanted to plant the first church untrained. He trained them so that they could then train others. How do we apply this? Well, before I go on, let me encourage you not to use the need for more training as an excuse. More training is always good, and we need perpetual training in the church, but most of you met all the prerequisites needed to move forward with the commission long ago. On the other hand, some of you probably do need more training. You're newer to this. Some of you maybe are just rusty. And so that means it's even more important for you to make a point to actually listen carefully to the sermons. You need to get involved in smaller groups like men's and women's ministry and go groups coming soon. You may need to take a course on how to share your faith, which I do plan to offer down the road. I was going to do it this summer. I don't know when it'll be now, but uh, that if it, I can also recommend some reading for you. But the point is that just like the first core team of the first church, we do need training if we're going to do what Jesus called us to do. Now, the third part of the early church's preparation and yours is this. You need to be convinced. You need to be convinced. Our text says to these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. What do they need to be convinced of? Mostly the resurrection. 
See, it wasn't all that easy for them to believe either. Jesus had to show up and show them. He did just that. And now we believe, at least partly, upon their eyewitness testimony. But are we as convinced as they were? I believe this is a big problem in the modern church, and it's going largely undiagnosed. I talked about it last Sunday. I'm afraid that too many church members today would have trouble articulating a personal belief in the resurrection of Christ. We're good on the cross, but many almost seem to shy away from the resurrection, and that's a serious problem. Revival will not come to the church until faith in the resurrection of Christ becomes life-changing for more people. See, the church of Acts was made up of those who had become fully convinced of the resurrection. It was the first thing on their lips. They were still astounded by what they had witnessed, still blown away by the fact that Jesus was alive. And they were intensely motivated by this fact. More than any other single thing, their belief in the resurrection was the passion that led them to change the world. They really believed that they had eternal life in Jesus. That because he was resurrected and he had promised their resurrection, he would come through. They really believed that like Jesus rose again, they would rise again. And that changed everything. They were convinced. They had experienced the risen Lord. Everything else they shared about Christ was established on the foundation of the fact that He rose again on the third day, just as He said He would, and just as had been prophesied of the Messiah centuries earlier. Is it possible that one of the biggest problems with the church today is that even church members aren't all that convinced of the resurrection? As Paul said, if Jesus did not rise, we're above all men to be pitied. Now, I've preached persuasive messages on the resurrection many times, but more than anything that, uh, that can happen in your mind as a result of the evidence, there is an inner conviction that must come from the Holy Spirit in the hearts of true believers. And if the people of Go Church don't really have this unshakable conviction, we have no chance to be the multiplying, powerful church Jesus wants us to be. Maybe I need some reassurance today. I need to hear a response. I, I, I need to know where this church stands. If you are fully convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, say so in the comments. You can just say, we believe, or however you want to say it. The first call of Christ to his church <clears throat> began with threefold preparation. We would do well to follow this pattern to get ready to, to obey his call. We need to embrace his commission. It's for us. We need to receive his training, and we need to become convinced, particularly of his resurrection. Second, as we continue on in the text, we can see <clears throat> that the church is promised power from the Holy Spirit. Moving on to verse 4. Gathering them together, Christ commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Get this, folks. We are promised power. We're promised the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we're not necessarily promised that this power will be manifested in the exact same ways that it was manifested in the first few decades of the church. But we are promised that we will receive His power. Let me expound on what I mean. To date, I have not brought anyone back to life. Okay? I mean, like both Paul and Peter did. There's no way around the fact that extra special stuff happened in the first century church that doesn't seem to be happening right now. I think there are some strong reasons for that. But ultimately, it falls under the heading of God being God and the fact that He works differently at different times in different places. But listen carefully. Jesus did not promise those exact specific things would keep happening. No. So what did He promise? He promised that we would receive power from the Holy Spirit to do what? To be His witnesses. As I said last week, we have received power to live and die in such a way as to help others believe in Jesus Christ, which by the way is the power to change someone's eternal destiny. There's nothing more powerful than being used by God to help someone move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But as we study the book of Acts, we will read about God doing miracles that maybe we've never seen in our time. Maybe we'll see those same miracles again tomorrow. Who knows? But right now, what we need to ask is this. What kind of power can we count on in the church today? First, notice that Jesus said His followers would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And He said they would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Before this scene, on another day, Jesus had said He would send the Holy Spirit after He returned to heaven. All of these phrases clearly reference a one-time permanent event which was promised to all of Christ's disciples, not just some. So what is this promise Jesus makes? In terms of receiving power, what does it mean that His disciples will be submerged or baptized in the Holy Spirit and or that the Holy Spirit will come upon them? And make no mistake, whatever power was promised to them, it was also promised to new disciples, as the ongoing narrative makes clear. And so down through the generations of disciple-making, this same power is also promised to us. What universal promise of power is Jesus making? How exactly is this true for every generation and for every believer? I believe this is a promise for the powerful presence of God in our lives. And that makes all the difference. Notice that you don't get the Holy Spirit halfway. You either get Him in a way that could be called a baptism or you don't get Him at all. The New Testament later teaches that the Holy Spirit literally takes up residence inside us. And He seals us, which means He does not come and go. That's what Jesus is talking about here. All the power that comes from the Spirit of God living inside us. And as the Apostle Paul later explained, all true believers have been given the same Holy Spirit. Just listen, just listen to the truth of Romans 8, verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. By the way, that's also a really good verse to help people understand the Trinity. God really is three in one. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Know this, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are interchangeable terms in the New Testament. It's very important that you understand that. They're interchangeable terms for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, that's the Holy Spirit. And that's clear in, in this verse uh, and throughout the New Testament. But for the purpose of this message, notice that the Holy Spirit is received at the moment of salvation. Listen, if you're truly saved, if you're truly saved, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you, whether you've always act like it or not. The problem is that we're sometimes just brazen enough and self-willed enough to ignore or even quench the Spirit. The New Testament authors took up a lot of space uh, telling us to recognize that He is in us and, and, and that we should start living like it and we should tap into Him. You know, to, to be filled with the Spirit, which is to submit to the Spirit who is already in you. <clears throat> so what does it really mean to have the Spirit of God living inside? Well, for one thing, it means power for living. I think this is mind-blowing, really. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. <clears throat> Let me be so bold as to ask you, if you would, to close your eyes for a minute. Just, just close your eyes, close out all the distractions, and, and just meditate on one thing for a moment with me. When you stop the spinning world of your mind for a moment and say in your heart, if you're a believer, if you, if you know Christ, if you put your trust in Christ, say this in your heart, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives in me. Just say it in your heart. The Holy Spirit lives in me in me. With your eyes still closed, just think about it. The Spirit of God is in there somewhere. As you recognize this and submit to Him, guess how you're going to feel? You're going to feel like He is filling you. The more you realize that He's there, the more you will know that He is filling the empty places. He is filling your heart and your soul. You just weren't aware of it. The Holy Spirit will make Himself known in your heart if you will be still and listen. Amen? Human beings have a strong will, and we're so in control of our own minds that we have to choose to recognize the presence of God in our lives by faith in order to really experience it. True believers have, in fact, been baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is just another way to say that He has come down and taken up residence in our hearts. Let, let's think a little bit more about the power we receive in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. What kind of power are we talking about? Can it be manufactured by people behaving a certain way in church? No. Is this like superhero powers? Should, should some believers be able to fly or, or see through walls or bend metal with their minds? Obviously not. So what can we really count on for sure when it comes to this power? We would need to study the whole New Testament to answer that question completely because the benefits of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer are mentioned often 
But let me just sort of brainstorm a few of the things that we can count on from this power. Every single one of these promises that I'm about to mention comes straight from the Bible. In the Holy Spirit, we have received power to talk to God and be understood. How amazing is that? We've received power to be given the words to tell others about God. We've received power to endure hardship, to love the unlovable, power to overcome fear, power to change, to be transformed, the power to resist temptation that will never be beyond what we could endure, what we could overcome. He always makes a way out. We've received the power to be able to comfort others in their distress, 2 Corinthians. Uh, to, the power to overcome Satan's schemes, the power to overcome self-centeredness, to experience God. The power to worship in spirit and truth and spirit. We couldn't worship in spirit if you don't have the spirit. To develop Christ-like character, 1 Peter. The power to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And sometimes, yes, even from the Holy Spirit, you might receive power to do miracles according to God's will and His timing. I've only scratched the surface when it comes to the power we're promised in the Holy Spirit. If you've been a believer very long, you know things would be much different in your life if He were not there. In essence, the power promised is life with God rather than life without Him. How does that sound? Life with God rather than life without Him. That's the power we're promised in the Holy Spirit. Let me also add that I think sometimes today's Christians miss out on experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit because we make sure not to do anything that requires it. God supplies His power where it's needed most. The best way to experience Holy Spirit power, Holy Spirit power is to really get out on mission for Christ. Share Jesus and you'll experience His power. He'll be there like you can't believe. Help plant a church, which by the way means working your tail off. That's what that means. Help plant a church. Prioritize, you'll have to prioritize the kingdom of God in your life if you're going to help plant a church. Become a missionary uh, here or somewhere else. And you'll find out, you'll find out what it means to have the Holy Spirit inside you. See, when you leave your comfort zone and attempt things you can't do in your own power, that's when His power comes shining through. The principle to remember is that the Holy Spirit's power is given not to impress us, has not God done enough? It's not given to, to even to help other people believe. As if God, the star maker, still, you know, he needed to do magic tricks. But rather, his power is given for the accomplishment of the mission of Jesus. That brings us to the third aspect of this first call of the church. And really, this is the clear articulation of that call. Number three, <clears throat> the church is propelled outward from home base. The church is prepared, the church has promised power, and the church is propelled outward from home base. Jesus said, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Here we have a strategic plan for the Great Commission. And it's given to us by Christ Himself. In the Great Commission, Matthew's version, 
Jesus called us to make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey. Here in Acts 1.8, we find out where to start and where to finish. We start at home base, and we finish in the remotest parts of the earth. Let me pause and ask you to pray about something. You may know that we have plans to plant another Go Church in Portland, and the planter will arrive in about a year, which means almost two years before it launches publicly. There'll be a year of groundwork that will need to be done. That's just not soon enough. I believe we're to multiply somehow between now and then. So I've been carefully considering the idea of launching something more like another campus, because that's a little bit easier to do and can be done more quickly. Uh, another campus where I would preach and, 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 and Connor would lead worship and, and some of our other leaders might be able to do double duty, possibly on Sunday nights. I see three distinct possibilities in front of me, but the latest and perhaps most intriguing, intriguing possibility I haven't mentioned, and it's Battleground. Uh, because something has kind of come across my desk, and I've realized that there is a place where we could meet that would be absolutely fantastic. So we have a gathering place already if we do Battleground. Having said that, the truth is that I do not know for sure yet where God is leading. Would you pray with me? Would you pray with me about where we should multiply next? And please pray that God will open the right doors to one of these towns where we can multiply and expand the kingdom of God as soon as possible. By the way, we don't really have to wait for, for, for more marching orders to do these things. We already have them. We already know God's will. He wants us to expand outward. The early church was propelled outward to all of these places Jesus mentioned. And, and listen, that's where the power was. That's when they saw God work, when they obeyed the call. The guts of the first calling of the church is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And do you know how they did that? Really? They did it by planting churches who planted churches who planted churches. And that is exactly what we're going to do. Jesus did not call us to create more church programs or build more buildings, though we will do that as a means to an end. But our first calling is not to do a million other good things. He didn't even call us to make sure we get our spiritual needs met or to preach better and better sermons or to form an organization that's focused on the advancement of itself. Our job is to be His witnesses, His ambassadors, His messengers. Where? Out there. I can hardly wait until we can gather again. But when we do, the primary purpose of it will be this, to be empowered together so that we can go out from our gathering and be his witnesses to the world. And we will do so starting from Jerusalem, which is Ridgefield for us, but going out from there to plant churches wherever the Lord leads. This thing we're doing right now, it's called a worship service. It's important, but it is not our mission. This is not our first calling. This is simply what we do at home base. And as a baseball fan, let me remind you of what you are if you never get off home base. If you never leave home base, you're out. The church Jesus had in mind is always looking to go, not stay. Can I ask each of you to be honest with yourself for a minute? Don't raise your hand in front of your family. But just answer this question in your own heart. When it comes to your thoughts about church, do you honestly think more outwardly? Or more inwardly. When you think about your wishes for this church, 
Do you think first about how we're going to bear witness to Christ locally, regionally, globally? Or do you honestly think more about what the music is like? Or how well you like the preaching? Or how good the kids' ministry is? Or whether you'll find some close friends? Or what ministry area you might get to lead? I would ask you to make an effort to turn your gaze outward. Pray most for the lost. Think with me about how we can take the church to them and also how we can bring them to the church. It's both ends. I know that right now with the epidemic or the pandemic, we're limited. But begin to think about how you can keep an outward focus so that even when we get to have that great reunion, coming back together for worship, you will also be able to remember that we gather mostly to be sent. We didn't call it go church to stay. We must always we must always strive <clears throat> we must always strive to think <clears throat> like missionaries like those who are called to go, because we are. Just like the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 10, I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what's best for me. I do what is best for others so that they may be saved. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. <clears throat> Jesus did not say you will enjoy a nice service and make some good friends when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He did not say you'll hear some well-written sermons when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He did not say you will create a big organization where people can feel like they're connected to something substantial. No. Jesus said, you will have the power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Consequently, if you are not being his witness, then you may not be experiencing his power. Now, the early church was better at this outward focus thing than we are today. But that doesn't mean it was easy for them either. We can even see this in today's text, verses 6 through 7, came as a strange interlude to what Jesus had been saying. In the middle of Christ's call to propel the church outward, the apostles betray their own selfish thinking. They asked Jesus if his kingdom will be coming soon. Basically, they're saying, hey, by the way, when does this whole heaven thing start? When does everything get to be easy and awesome? They ask. Jesus brushes the question aside and simply calls them to go and to be the ones. To be the ones who expand his kingdom from Jerusalem. To Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth, like the early disciples 
We need to be prepared by Christ. We need to receive and appropriate the power of His Holy Spirit, and we need to be propelled outward as His witnesses here, there, and everywhere He leads. We need to keep Christ's first calling first. Jesus said, And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. May it be true of me. May it be true of you. Because that is the only way it can be true of Go Church. Let's pray to that end. Father, you know my heart. You know that the vision you've given me is a church that would be unique in its outward focus. There are times we need to do things that strengthen the family. There are times we need to do things that help us to be healthy and to grow. But God, let the thing that burns in our hearts be taking Christ to the nations. Nothing compares to the first calling you gave us in terms of our priority, in terms of our passion, in terms of what we need to make sure that we are doing. Help us follow you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I close, I recognize that there may be those that are listening today who, who, who don't know Jesus. You've never put your trust in Christ. And this has been a message for the church. This has been a message to help our church know what we need to do. But I just want to pause for one second and say, if you're a person who, who's never put your trust in Jesus, you can do that today. Because he has a mission for you, but first, you have to be forgiven of your sin. You know, none of us are, are perfect, but we have to be made right with God. And we're made right with God by our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and his resurrection. As I mentioned last week in Romans 8, or Romans um, 10, 9 10, that, that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus rose from the dead, we, that Jesus is Lord and, and, and that he rose from the dead, that we'll be saved. And so if that's something that you're ready to do, listen, please let us know. You could message us or you could put it in the, in the comments if you're not afraid to do that. But, but message us if you're watching on Facebook or email me. Uh, if you're on YouTube, email me at gochurchpastormark at gmail.com. Gochurchpastormark at gmail.com. I want to talk to you about how Jesus can come into your heart and how he can save you. Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit can come into your heart through faith and he can save you and change you. Please, if it's even a question, if you're willing to just talk about it, let us know. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.